Welcome to the Creating Ripples podcast. I'm your host, Alexandra Zahner. I believe in the power of sharing our experiences and knowledge with others, and when we do, we are creating ripples of impact around us. Each week, get ready for intimate personal shares, honest, relatable conversations, aha moments, and so much more. This space was designed to create empowerment, inspiration, community, and provide guidance to elevate those around us. I am so excited to have you here. Get ready and let's start creating ripples. Hello, welcome to the Creating Ripples podcast. I'm your host, Alexandra Zahner, and today I am chatting with Molly Burney, and she is a clinical life coach, and I am really excited for her to share her personal journey with all of you and for you to get some really good insight from Molly and her background. So Molly, please introduce yourself to the listeners. Sure. Hi, I'm Molly Burney. Um, I'm, I'm not used to introducing that I'm a clinical life coach. That's the part that other people say, but, uh, but yeah, I, I can get on board with that. I am a clinical life coach um, and my background is as a therapist. So that's the sort of um, t- the trajectory I took to, to get here. Awesome. Can yeah. you tell me a little bit about, you know, your story and your journey that led you into wanting to become a clinical life coach and really the steps that got you into that career? Sure, sure. Well, I can, uh, I can start in my early 20s here when uh, the thing that no one tells you about your 20s is that they're just going to suck. You're just going to be really in, in the storm of drong of your life. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, that's just not the picture that's painted for us when we're in our adolescent years looking at our 20s. We think, oh, I'm going to have I'm gonna have my shit together. I'm really gonna have opportunity. I'm gonna be social. I'm gonna, you know, and none of that was mm-hmm. the reality. Um, the reality was I had an ass kicking eating disorder and felt like I wasn't present in any part of my life. So, um, you know, my, I think my, my trajectory really started in my early recovery. Um, and at the time I was, I was finishing up my first master's in choral conducting of all things. I was a musician at the very beginning <laughs> of this game. Um, and I wasn't a particularly good musician. I was, I was a good teacher, but I, in terms of musicianship, that wasn't my thing. And, um, I was working with my coach, um, who I, I still work with. And at the time he was saying, Molly, you're, you're not a musician. You're a coach. Can I like, l- let me train you. Let me work with you. This will be a whole process. And I was like, no, no, no. I, I, if anything, if anything, maybe I would be a therapist, but I'm not supposed to be. And I, I did this one year teaching position at uh, Exeter in Exeter, New Hampshire, which is a boarding school. Mm-hmm. And I was doing this um, choral music <laughs> uh, teaching internship. And because it's a boarding school, I was on duty talking to some of these kids. Um, I was living in a faculty apartment in the dorms. And so if they were struggling with something, they were coming to me. And there I was in early recovery. And I was also sort of raised in the, the world of the, the 12-step recovery. My mom is a thousand years mm-hmm. sober. And uh, I, I grew up going to meetings, like going, it's almost like going to church. Um, and so I, I, I actually had things to say to these kids who were struggling with the compulsive overachieving natures and mm-hmm. um, depression, anxiety, and all of that. And I thought, I am so much more looking forward to talking to these kids about what's going on with them. <laughs> than I am looking forward to score study or, or preparing for um, rehearsals. I'm clearly in the wrong career. I got to go get another master's. My coach was right. So uh, my, my style is to want to, to want to push hard. My, my husband as a, um, 
one of his nicknames for me is gas pedal because uh, like reining it in is heroic for me. It's not heroic for everybody, but for me, a rest day is heroic. And so, um, you know, if I, if I was going to go into the mental health field, I was going to, I wasn't just going to go into coaching. I was going to get the master's in clinical psych. I was going to get my hours. Um, and I did, and I, that was great. I got to specialize in disordered eating and um, addiction treatment. I did a lot of uh, intervention work and, and work with families in crisis. And finally, one day my coach said to me, okay, are, are you done pretending to be a therapist now? Are you ready for me to train you to coach? And that day I said, okay. Okay. And the real reason in, that I said okay to that was understanding that the coaching conversation is so irreverent and playful and directive and collaborative. And in that sense, it's, it's really different from the therapeutic conversation. And I wanted to be able to bring in the clinical material into the coaching conversation so I could rely on those underpinnings, but still kind of be a bit of a cowboy when necessary. Right. Um, and this, this wasn't just about, you know, not being beholden to the Board of Behavioral Sciences with licensure. This was much more about um, just feeling like I wanted to construct the conversation and the vision that I had for uh, mm-hmm. my client. And as a therapist, uh, vision is not part of, of what you're bringing to the table. Um, and that's you know, not to say that I can't pivot or evolve the vision that I have for a client based on information I'm getting or anything like that. But I, I certainly like to have a, a sense of where this can go. And, um, you know, that's one of the many ways that it, uh, therapy differs from coaching. Hmm. Can, so like if some, if you had a client that was coming to you, how would they decide to work with you as a clinical life coach versus mm-hmm. a therapist? It's a great question. The, um, the distinction that I tend to, it's not a flattering distinction, but the distinction I tend to make between therapy and coaching is that if you think of therapy as termites, then coaching, good coaching is like a buzzsaw. It can be really sharp, really quick, really effective if you're prepared for it. It's not the right thing for everyone. You you sort of have to be at a particular place in your own healing process and your own journey um, to be prepared for the coaching conversation that can be a little bit surgical, can be a little bit abrupt, can be way more playful. Um, Then I'm, I'm not just coaching with clinical material. I'm coaching with uh, the blood that I've left on the field and my own experience as well. So getting to include that material really changes the landscape. So uh, usually someone who wants a more directive conversation, who wants a little bit more pushback, a little bit more feedback, um, and someone who's not in an active trauma position. Um, you know, those are certainly conversations that I can move into briefly with clients. But for the most part, if you're in t- trauma territory, you need to be with a specialist. And so I like to refer out for that. But other than that, I have a pretty wide variety of clients. It's a wide mm-hmm. range. And with your own experience, I'm sure you're able to help just a variety of different people that are coming to you with all sorts of coaching needs. Yeah, it's it's a wide scope. I mean, getting to, to come from the disordered eating field as a therapist, of course, the beginning portal with a lot of my clients actually is food, body image, sort of, uh, it's often a compulsive exercise, which is part of my uh, my own history. I can certainly get into that too. Um, that you know, some clients will come with that. Um, some clients are coming for interested in, in professional or career pivots or relationship pivots, looking to get into or out of the relationship they're in. Um, and some who are simply hungry for the next step in their own process. I tend to get a lot of clients who have done therapy for five or 10 years and they're saying, okay, what's next? I'm interested in a fresh conversation. What's next? Mm. And this is often it. 
Can you speak a little bit more about your lived experiences that really help you to be the coach that you are and have got you into the seat? And as you were talking about earlier, like the blood that you dripped <laughs> um, like through your life and what those experiences really are that have impacted you and really allow you to show up as the best coach that you can for your clients. Totally. Um you know, I, I often say one of the things you want to look for in a coach is sure, someone who's had plenty of successes, but you also want someone who's really had plenty of failures as well, who's been through the trenches. Um, and whether I'm looking at uh, like a, a, a trauma history with my, my dad or my relationship to food and body and the way that's evolved over the years, um, I, I certainly have <laughs> a lot of grist for the mill, so to speak. But I, um, you know, I, I grew up in LA, my parents were actors. Um, my mom did a, um, a TV sitcom in the 80s, and my dad was doing mostly Shakespearean theater. And I, I, I got really inundated in that, that Hollywood culture and, and the messages about my body, who I had to be, um, who I wasn't allowed to be, what characteristics would be applauded, what characteristics would, would be more, uh, have a more, more repellent quality to them. So there was always this sort of performative, here I am, is this good enough? Um, experience forever. Um, and, and also a sense of struggling with my own, um, my own femininity, because even though my, my mom was the more successful of, uh, between her and my father, um, she was, my dad was a beast, <laughs> clinically speaking here, um, and, uh, and, and made it difficult for her to be as successful as she was. So there was a lot of misogyny just flying around in the household, essentially. And I, I think I certainly internalized a lot of that. So a lot of the conversations I have with women now are the ways in which their own internalized misogyny is showing up, whether it's in the expectation of themselves, uh, the expectation mm -hmm. to compulsively push to have to be achieving or else what am I worth? Um, and there are a lot of different flavors of that, but um, you know, and it also shows up of course in, in the, the body image conversation. And um, am I valuable under these conditions? Am I valuable if I do the mm -hmm. extra reps? Okay, but not if I, if I don't really, is that, is that true? Um, so there's, a lot of belief systems there that need to be um, that need to be unraveled. And I, sorry, go ahead. You're no, gonna I was just gonna say, how do you, how do you work and start, how do you start to work through something such as that? And I think that's a hard thing for a lot of women probably to recognize. Yeah, it really is. And, and no one's coming in saying, you know, Hey, I think I have some internalized misogyny to work through. <laughs> Usually it sounds more like, um, I'll, I'll have the conversation with women where they're trying to get pregnant, but they're, they're working out in a really compulsive way that suppressed their period. And so it takes a lot of courage to mm. be able to stop working out. For some of us, that's heroic. Um, that's not heroic for everyone. There are plenty of clients where the work is about cultivating more discipline. But for those of us that have overused or overworked the muscle of discipline, we need to develop some other muscle systems here. <laughs> so I, um, I, th yeah. I think about two the burnout, the burnout culture, mm -hmm. and how, how does that come into effect here? Well, it, it often, it looks like the, the, really the fear of resting in, in any other, other way or questioning one's value if I'm not producing, if I'm not achieving, if I'm not contributing something. Mm -hmm. the, the inhale, exhale is not enough of a contribution all the time. So there, there must be more, right? Mm. And oftentimes that, that comes because we're operating from a, this really shame-based belief system that my, my mere existence is not sufficient. I have to contribute. Mm. I have to improve. I have to 
whatever that is. Um, and sometimes I see this hesitancy to rest in women with the women who are constantly seeking their own emotional work, that they work with coach after coach after coach, or this shaman and that medication and this meditation. And it's like, well, hold on a second, just your being might be a spiritual intervention on its own here. Mm. Um, but that requires the belief that you don't actually have to, uh, to apologize with your perfectionism, mm. so to speak. I think that is such a hard thing to do because there's just so much pressure that we as women have to go the extra mile all the time. My girlfriends and I were just talking about this in our group chat about how we're all trying to set better boundaries around our work and logging off so that we can be there for our partners or our family or you know, even friendships. And Mm -hmm. it's really hard to not feel that guilt that you were talking about, that we're not showing up enough and that we need to do more. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, And again, that that comes from a a place of inadequacy. And then our doing is not a creative act. It becomes a solution to a problem, the Mm -hmm. problem of our inadequacy, which has a way of validating the problem rather than solving the problem. So our compulsive doing is not actually getting us to liberation. It's really just entrenching us in the same problem over and over. And we, we end up burning the candle at both ends where we're probably not producing the best work that we would be able to if we were setting those better boundaries, if we were listening to what our bodies and our minds needed for us to show up as a better right. employee. So in, in that case, the work becomes, okay, if you sit still, what comes up in your brain? What comes up in your body? What are the the belief systems that you're starting to put out there? Oh, because I'm still, that means this. Or if I'm taking a break, then I'm not doing, okay, and what does that mean about you? That's that's what we want to get curious about. What's the narrative you're running in your head as a result of this choice? Because the narrative is always based on anxiety. It's not actually based on fact. You know, it's not like this is a a, a, a thought that's that's arrived at through critical thinking. It's just based in fear and anxiety and shame. Mm. So we want to get really, really curious about what is the narrative that runs when you do the courageous act of resting. It's it, when I'm like thinking about this of allowing ourselves that rest and allowing ourselves to do it without that shame, without Mm -hmm. that guilt. It's, it's, we find ourselves as women. I feel where, when we do take that opportunity to set those boundaries, we don't just do it and are like, okay, I'm going to do, I'm going to set the boundary today. It's exactly what you're talking about of then the anxiety just starts to creep up of like, Mm -hmm. oh my God, but what if an email comes in or what if someone needs me? And the coaching work is how do you navigate the anxiety? Mm. Cause that, that's the work. Not about how do you actually achieve enough to calm the beast? You can't calm the beast. This is about how do you actually navigate the anxiety that comes up? How do you tolerate that? What's your strategy? So this work often starts with what is your strategy for tolerating that? And I, um, you know, one of my favorite examples to reference from my own world is um, I, I went through a, a period in my late twenties where I was doing competitive boxing and I um, was training with a coach and I was doing tournaments and things like that. And when it became time for my husband and I to, to start trying to get pregnant and I discovered, oh wait, I, I didn't have a period. I was one of those women. Um, my doctor at the time told me, you need to, you need to soften. 
it was like the, the the dirtiest word you could possibly have said to me. I was like offended. It's often, it's horrendous. Um, but I think what she, what she had actually said to me was, was that your your body thinks you're being chased by dinosaurs. This is not a great time to reproduce. Mm. Uh, oh, okay. I've uh, I have actually crushed my femininity in some way. I've I've like extinguished it. So mm. how do I sit? and allow this thing to come back and do my, this thing, <laughs> my period. I mean, you know, just do the gentle yoga and the walks around the neighborhood. How do I, how do I manage that? What do I risk losing in the process? Because it's not just a body type. It's not just about my abs, it's whatever I think my abs are representing or whatever identity I think that protects, whoever I think that makes me. Oh, I get to be the girl with discipline if I'm working out a bunch, or I get to be the girl who's really driven or really you know, masterful in the gym, whatever the hell that means. But uh, it was only about maintaining that identity rather than, can I get curious about what other identities I can adopt here? Mm. And in that stillness, in the, okay, I'm not gonna box, I'm not gonna train, I'm not gonna lift, I'm not gonna run. My workout is how do I navigate my anxiety? I had to deal with it wave after wave. It's a, there's a lot of fear in there, but um, but it's it's certainly I'm not asking my clients to do anything I haven't done. How what would be like the best or the first place that you would start for someone that is trying to navigate setting better boundaries for themselves, allowing themselves to take those breaks and the fear, the anxiety, it's, it's can be very crippling for people. And where, where can they start to try to really navigate that to, to be okay with giving themselves the break and the rest that they need? Right. Well, I think it starts with changing the expectation that it's not going to feel okay to give ourselves that break, but that Mm -hmm. that feeling is born of our survival system that says, Molly, you have to step on the gas pedal. Or Molly, you have to go lift. You have to do a second time, an hour in the gym today. That one hour wasn't enough, or whatever I've I've decided is going to be the barometer for my goodness mm-hmm. or badness at any at any given moment. Um, that that we we have to stop expecting that that's going to be comfortable, um, and that the survival system producing that noise is something that we should actually start to be suspicious of, rather than going to it with authority as though it has any credibility when it says. Mm-hmm. Hey, you're you know, whatever. You're you're lazy if you don't go lift again, or you're uh, if you have that to eat, or if you take the day off, or you have whatever it happens to be. Um, we we have to begin to respond to that with a little bit more suspicion, mm. but we can't expect that it's suddenly going to feel good to take some rest. You know, these are deep neural pathways that have been ingrained in the brain for years. So being able to off-road from those neural pathways, that's a skill that takes some discipline. But that's the magic word for women like us. We know how to do discipline. We just don't know how to use it as a creative act. We only know how to use it as an abusive one. And that's the, the sort of the distinction that's the beginning of, uh, I think, recovery in that, in that process. Recovery from man, the, the, the capitalist race, so to speak, that shows up in our exercise, in our work, in the way we parent, in the way we operate in the world, the way we eat. It's, it's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. What I think is a huge takeaway from what you were just talking about is that the anxiety and the fear doesn't have the authority. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that's huge and can be applicable in so many, so mm. many scenarios. Absolutely. Those, those are substantial feelings that for whatever reason in elementary, high school, college, we are not taught how to navigate this. How do you work with fear when it comes up and it has you by the throat? How do you, how do you operate when your anxiety is hostage 
what do you do in that moment? And you know, we have such, um, such resistance towards spending any time in those feelings that they've become dark parts of town that we can't go to. It's become mm-hmm. completely unsafe rather than, oh, these are feelings that come up all the time. I can swim in these waters. I can have these feelings without them having me. And that's a, you know, mm-hmm. another part of the work when I work with those who are struggling with um, depression and anxiety. It's often, do you have your depression or does your depression have you? Do you have your anxiety or does your anxiety have you? Um, and that's, these are different than the conversations you would have obviously with a therapist around anxiety or depressive uh, symptoms. But you know, it's a lot about your relationship to these symptoms rather than can mm-hmm. I transform the symptoms themselves? What I find is when the relationship shifts, the rest of it shifts. Mm, that is such an, it's like a, such an eye-opening way of looking at it, of r- really trying to understand what's coming up. How do we work with the fear, the anxiety, the depression and navigate? I loved what you were saying of the feelings that come up and like swim in these waters because mm. the more resistant we are to those feelings, we're never going to be able to understand how to work through them. We have to understand right. how to really have a relationship with them because they're going to keep showing up no matter what. So it's understanding how do we work with them? Totally. So at this point, for example, I'm, I'm 15 years in recovery and I've been out of the, the boxing scene forever and, and I've no longer lived in any compulsive way, but I'm still going to have noise like, yo, do 40 more minutes on the treadmill. What are you thinking? Mm. That's of course that's going to come up. But my job is to a be suspicious of that Am I sure that this is actually a, is this born of like the desire to run? Is this because this is going to make my body feel good? Or is this a solution to a self-worth issue in the moment? Is this some proof that I'm going to be enough if I do that? Is it going to check some box or scratch some itch that is actually not that credible? Is it like, is this something that my fear is suggesting that is necessary? Um, and to not have any judgment about, oh, I shouldn't be having that thought. Of course I should have that thought. Given my history, it'd be weird if I didn't have that thought. So of course, when that comes up, I get to respond to that with compassion, but compassion doesn't mean that I sit down and take direction from it. Mm. It means that I can challenge it a little bit. I can go, am I sure? Who do I think I am if I don't do that, those extra 40 minutes on the treadmill? Might it be a heroic act if I tolerate not being who I think it'll make me be if I spend 40 more minutes on the treadmill? We gotta get Mm. more curious about um, who we're telling ourselves we're going to be or what that means about us. That is, so what I'm like thinking about here is, you know, we so often I feel, um, and I, I find myself doing this too, where I, I feel I have to be someone because of what another person expects of me Mm -hmm. or the image that I think people see me as versus who do I want to be? How do I want to show up for myself? And I think that is like the inner battle, especially as women that we face of who do I want to be? How do I want to show up in the world? What do I want to do for Mm -hmm. myself versus like society telling you to go work out and be skinny and you know, be fit and eat all the healthy things. And it's like, is that, is that what you want to do? Or is that what you think you're supposed to do? Mm -hmm. And that's where the internalized misogyny ends up coming up because most women you ask who have a compulsive relationship to exercise or a compulsive relationship to um, taking their anxiety very seriously or compulsively achieving will tell you that this isn't about other people. This is about what they expect of themselves. Mm -hmm. That's how we know it's internalized. 
Um, and that doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad thing. You can have drive. Again, it's like, do you have drive or does drive have you? I, I was working with this guy. Um, he was talking about how he, he runs uh, 10 miles a day and he's like, he's a lawyer and he's extremely successful, very, very driven. Um, and, and also extremely, extremely controlling. Um, and not in a, in a way that's like self-destructing his life, but um, that running those 10 miles is part of how he exercises that control. So the work with him was about what happens if you don't? Do you have the freedom to not run those 10 miles? And he was like, Molly, don't, don't get in the way of my running. My running's very healthy. Like, Absolutely, of course, running daily is gonna be healthy, but not if you don't have the option to take a rest. And I've realized that I'm talking about internalized misogyny and here's the example of giving you as a guy, so forgive me. Um, but, but that's an, you know, the example of, um, of someone who's so convinced that this is something that's a benefit to them. And I'm not saying it's not, we just wanna get more curious about, do you have any space from that? Or are you actually, it's hostage. You know, just cause it's working for you doesn't mean it doesn't own you. Mm. Those things aren't necessarily mutually exclusive, so. And I think too, with exercise, it, when you start to become to a point where you're just doing it to check the box versus, mm-hmm. is it actually giving me a uh, personally, I think you should be exercising. Obviously. Yeah. The physical benefits are great, but the mm-hmm. mental benefits mm-hmm. go far so much further in my opinion. Absolutely. And I think looking at it that way, like is the way that I'm showing up to move my body still serving me in a mental capacity where when I finish, I feel a sense of strength and pride or relaxation or joy Mm -hmm. or like power in my body. How do you feel when you're finishing that movement? Is it just you checked it off your box and you're mm-hmm. glad you checked it off? Or do you actually feel like the benefits from the movement beyond just the sheer got it done? Right. And where I think it gets tricky is if, again, if you ask, if you ask the version of me that gets off the treadmill after doing the extra 40 minutes and say, how do you feel in your body? I'd be like, oh, I feel great. I feel invigorated. I feel like it would feel as though it had done its, its job, mm. but the part we're not counting is where my cortisol is spiking later and I'm having trouble falling asleep and I'm antsy and I'm anxious Mm. and I'm a little hyped up or I didn't get to spend the time with my son today that I was going to spend or I didn't get to write that client back or man I'm not going to be as present later or now I'm going to be racing from the shower into that next session where I'm not really appreciating how much time I've now devoted towards checking this box how much energy I've devoted Mm. towards checking this box when really it was time that needed to be restorative or some sort of um, some sort of non-box checking time, you know? Yeah. How do you, what advice would you give someone that is you know, looking ahead to their calendar, planning out their week and evaluating, okay, what, what do I need to do here? What do I need to maybe take off my plate for the week so that I am showing up for myself And sometimes that means maybe you skip the run and maybe you do a five minute meditation or, you know, how do you look at your calendar and make sure you're really like, I want to say like filling your cup or 
be mindful about it. I think is yeah, kind of where I, you're going, but there's I enough balance like, in there. How do you navigate that of like, you see exercise on your calendar and you instantly think, okay, well, that's really good for me. But to your point of, yes, it is, but also is it taking other things away? Is it going mm-hmm. to cause you to be behind in your day? Is it going to cause mm-hmm. you, you know, extra stress because now you didn't get those emails done. Um, how do you look yeah. at that ahead and really figure out, okay, what is the benefit here? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think the, one of the first pieces is if you look at that calendar, would you prescribe that calendar to somebody else? Mm. For the most part, no. <laughs> the, like the, how packed I make my personal calendar. I would never say to my husband, Hey, here's your calendar for the week. Go. You know, we would, we would never push anybody else or hold anybody else to those standards that we hold ourselves to. So the first question would be, yeah, would you, would you hand that calendar to anybody else and say, go for it um, with no apology? And I think that the second piece is, you know, you, we, we can tell what our relationship is to these, to these commitments by how willing we are to pivot when it comes up. Mm-hmm. If something comes in the way, can you pivot or are you destroyed? And by destroyed, I don't mean, you know, wrecked and sobbing, um, but at, at how much real estate is it taking up that you didn't get to do the workout that you thought you were going to do? Because that, that is, then you're, it's hostage for sure. What, even if you've not done the workout and you're still thinking about it, that's taking up a ton of mental real estate. That's eating mm-hmm. up time where you would otherwise be present with your family. So mm-hmm. that's the second thing is how quickly are you able to surrender it in favor of something else? Which, or surrender something else in favor of the exercise. And does that happen a lot? Um, we wanna get curious about that too. And the third thing I think, you know, we, we often think that balance is about, I think this, I probably put this up on Instagram at some point, but that the balance is about being, making sure we're doing as much yoga as we are doing laundry. But I think it's really much more about being as present for the laundry as we are for the yoga. I think balance is a function of presence that you are on balance if you are present with whatever you are doing. Because if we are, then it can actually have that yin quality to it. It can have that restorative quality. Um, you know, less so when you're on balance and present on the treadmill. But uh, certainly if, you're, if I'm with my son or if I'm doing mm. stuff around the house or I'm with a client, yeah, that that doesn't have to, to have that intensity if I'm actually present with it. Um, it, it is an expression of balance. Presence is a really challenging discipline. It's a challenging discipline to have, especially with how easy it is to be distracted Mm. with our phones, with the TV, with music, with maybe the kids are playing on like a digital game, whatever it is. It's so easy to be running a mile a minute. what are some of your ways to like really get fully present in what you are doing? One of the greatest gifts my husband and I give to each other is half an hour each every morning. So I get half an hour to meditate, to do some basic asana practice or uh, read whatever I'm, whatever text I'm reading, spiritual or otherwise, um, and sort of dig into it and just have time to myself. Uh, and it's not that we don't get time to ourselves throughout the day, but having this really carved out as here's how I start. That's a big part of it. Um, mm. You know, I also make sure that I'm I'm in yoga with a teacher who really, really is serious about the yin aspect of the practice, um, and is not messing around when when he's suggesting that this is far more courageous, nuanced, and uh, uh, and, and demanding than the yang part of the practice than the intensity is. Um, so yeah, a regular yoga practice is also part of that. 
wait, now I forgot your question. Ah, repeat it. I'm sorry. How, how do you, how do you get present? Oh yeah. Well, yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. Yeah. Um, and I think the, the other part is, um, is being accountable for it in the moment. Uh, and it's something my husband and I invite each other into all the time is, Hey, come back. Hey, are you here? Whether if he's staring off into his phone or I'm staring off into space or I've been chewing on an email for too long, he just say he'll turn to me and say, babe, be here now, mm-hmm. which is the, you know, the, the Ram Dass quote. Mm. Um, is there certain ways if you find that you're kind of running from like one thing into the next and you're not really able to like slow down throughout the day that really works for you to be able to kind of step back and be like, okay, Molly, let's take a moment here. Mm-hmm. Any form of breath work before I sit down and see a client that I, I tend to sit cross-legged when I'm working. And so I, I sit, this is a little bit cheesier than I like to admit. I, I like to present as an academic, but um, in truth, I'm far more, <laughs> more, far more spiritual and woo-woo than I uh, acknowledge with clients. But yeah, I'll, I'll sit in the lotus position. I'll drop my shoulders. I will close my eyes. I will breathe, whether it's box breathing or basic pranayama stuff, or um, simply can I sit in, in silence for two minutes before I have this session so I can show up and be of service rather than show up and solve someone's problem or be something, or, you know, that it, it's, it, it makes it about them rather than about me. Can I just show up and be a conduit for the work? So yeah, anytime you can stop and catch one single breath, mm. maybe string some together, but one single breath is enough to, for that brief moment, off-road from the neural pathway, the automatic thought that we're in, the automatic habituated pattern that we've fallen into. I think that ties perfectly back into what we were talking about at the beginning with the burnout and feeling like we always have to be go, go, going on. And if you're finding yourself in days like that, allow yourself those few moments of silence and just sitting with your breath for a little bit, Mm -hmm. if that's really, truly the only break that you're going to be able to get and give yourself that rest, give yourself that break and be okay with it. And I want to add to that, that be compassionate with yourself for how incredibly uncomfortable it is. Mm -hmm. And that oftentimes, you know, with the reason people avoid meditation is they're saying, well, I'm I'm not good at it. Well, being good at meditation is actually not about transcending thought or, or levitating or, you know, uh, being able to avoid thinking. It's really about how much compassion can you have your, with yourself in any given moment with the fact that you're not particularly good at this and you can't stop your brain. It's, it's the relationship to self. It's the relationship to your own self-talk. And so being able to stop in that moment and going, oh, this is really uncomfortable. I cannot wait to get back to that email. Can you stay for 30 seconds more? Can you just sit in the discomfort? Can you acknowledge that the discomfort is supposed to be there? That the discomfort is letting you know that there's anxiety at play. And by the way, that's where that's where my work comes in with you is how do we navigate that conversation of anxiety in your head in that particular moment? Um, but but in, in not thinking that that anxiety isn't supposed to be there or the discomfort isn't supposed to be there or that means you're bad at it. All it means is you have a brain. Your brain's gonna brain. You're not supposed to be able to stop that. And... To your point, anxiety, fear, these are all common experiences, feelings that many, if not all of us, have or do experience at some point. Yeah. Yeah. They're they're part of the human condition here. Mm -hmm. They really are. When you were talking about the relationship with self-talk, it was this something that really you learned through your experiences of navigating th- 
throughout recovery and then as you were boxing and then making your transition from, you know, your clinical background to coaching and where did that relationship with self-talk really start to begin and come into play for you? It's it's funny. I've never been asked that question, but I'm, as I'm kind of constructing my answer, I'm realizing I have a lot to say about this. I was one of those who um, I I didn't want to hear anything about self-compassion. I didn't want to hear anything about self-love. That was all too, there wasn't enough critical thinking in that. My fear somehow was that if I really opened myself to this self-love, self-compassion idea, then I would have no standards for myself. Mm. Then I wouldn't be able to hold myself accountable. Um, and so the, my self-talk was mostly being a dick to myself, which um, I later discovered, this is yet another quote that um, bounced around Instagram um, with my name on it, which is that if being a dick to yourself was an effective strategy for transformation, probably would have worked by now. And that was one of the realizations uh, that I, I came to, again, with the help of my coach, who was saying, can you get out of your head? Can you actually get into your heart? And I was just, I was just repelled by that idea. It was too cushy. I was worried I, if, I, if I actually was in the world of self-love, I don't know what I was worried would happen. I would lose my intellect or my sharpness, my shrewdness. Um, that I, I, I thought that my cynicism earned me credibility in some way. Mm. And it was a... It was a slow process between working with a, a therapist and, and then you know my, my coach I've worked with for years to get more curious about what they were saying, to get curious if I was wrong about this idea that cynicism and intellect was the way to go and, and being really harsh with myself and having harsh self-talk, having critical self-talk. I really had to get curious about whether there was something wrong with my method. Um, and it wasn't that I wasn't getting better. Like I, my career was starting and it was, I had a lot of traction. But I also knew that I was in this conflict because it, here I was encouraging others in the direction, generally speaking, of self-love. But I was so loath to, to put my toes in that, that water myself. So it really was an intentional process to go, okay, okay, I'm, if you're, you guys are telling me that I need to get out of my head and be in my heart. I'm terrified of that. I'm worried I'm going to lose my whole identity as uh, whatever I thought I was, an intellectual or something. Um, and, and now I'm going to risk turning into a hippie with a mood ring or something like that was my, that was my fear. Um, you know, only to discover years later that what I actually got was a different relationship with my intelligence and my cynicism, which I still have, by the way, it's not that I've sacrificed them at the altar of things that are heart centered. I just get to include heart centered values and heart centered self-talk in my, um, uh, in my, in my inner narrative here. So it, it's not about replacing one value for the other. It's expanding our values to include mm. something that I would kind of dismissed before. With your story, how do we overcome that idea of embracing self-love and self-talk and giving ourselves compassion? I think that starts with retranslating for ourselves what compassion means. That compassion has gotten a dirty word or become a, a dirty word to Americans that we think it's, it's tantamount to letting ourselves off the hook. And the more I actually dug down into studying this and understanding how people were working with it, understand like getting spiritual teachers who were working with it um, and reading from, from the mystics and the masters of how I do work with self-compassion. Um, it is rife with accountability in the best possible way, which is the most encouraging thing for me to discover that this was not about letting ourselves off the hook. This was about simply filtering the truth 
through kindness rather than through abuse mm. or through honesty rather than through judgment. And that was it. And self-compassion was just removing the shame and the sting of it, but we could still hold ourselves accountable with it. So that was the, the first part, really just re-educating myself about compassion and then having to just practice it as much as it made my, my skin crawl, it made my teeth hurt. I just, I couldn't, metta meditation or self-love mantras, please, just, oh, I couldn't handle it. And I had to do it anyway. I had to just practice. Uh, and it, it wasn't, it's not like any one of those mantras like unlocked my heart chakra and I, you know, I went for it. Um, but it, it, it was more that doing those practices challenged the part of myself that I thought I had to maintain in order to be okay. I, the, it challenged the, the, the cynic, it challenged the intellect, it challenged the academic um, and, and challenged in, in my fear, my credibility. You know, would, would my academic colleagues judge me for trying these practices and, and trying to be less cynical or trying to be less cerebral? Mm. Um, so yeah, there, there, was, there was the sort of that courageous element too of can I just put myself in the heart of this work? But that also required some humility. I had to stop thinking that my way was was the most effective way. And letting go of that that thought or that idea or that fear of what others were gonna think seeing you do this work. Totally. And that's that's freedom to be seen as anything. You know, if if I'm so busy, uh, the some feedback I got from my coachman and I was uh, early in, in getting trained by him and I was getting supervised. He said, Molly, do you want to be a smart coach or do you want to be an effective coach? And it nailed me to the wall. <laughs> I, I really, it took me a second to answer because I was like, actually not sure that I would rather be more effective than smart. But finally had to, um, had to acknowledge, yes, I would, I would rather be effective. But what that meant, if I was trying to be smart all the time, that meant that I might actually miss the client that needs an intervention that would not feature my intellect. Mm but would instead feature something else. Um, and I, the day after he said that, I had a client who came into my office. Um, I, I wasn't virtual at the time. And she, uh, she, was, uh, she sought a lot of reassurance. So she was asking a lot of questions and really wanted my answers. And they were I, answers, uh, as I was answering, I was like, this sounds great. I sound smart. There are data points. <laughs> I'm referencing shit. This is great. Until it dawned on me, oh, damn, she doesn't need my answers. She needs me to say, I don't know, and sit with her in the anxiety of not knowing together. She mm. needs help tolerating the anxiety, which so many of us do. But in order for us to get there, I had to be willing to say, I don't know, can we just be in the anxiety together and risk her thinking that I didn't have an answer to her question. Mm. So in that way, it becomes well, what, what's of service to the client? Do I want to be smart or do I want to be effective? We got to find value in being willing to be seen as something we think we cannot be seen as, or we're going to lose everything. So there's value in, at this point for me in not being seen as smart, because if I'm not trying to be seen as smart, then I can be silly. I can be irreverent. It um, mm. frees me up to ask for help or resources when I need them. Um, versus if I'm having to be seen as smart, then I'm per perpetually promoting that and protecting that. That's a hostage situation. Mm. When you were talking about your heart-centered values and heart-centered self-talk and the heart chakra and things. And, you know, I, there, there's a lot of words that probably someone listening may not even know what those, what those words and mm -hmm. definitions are. If you could just explain a little bit more about what that meant for you to start to incorporate that type of work um, into your life. 
Sure. Uh, well, I also want to clarify part of the reason why I threw them out there is because they're buzzwords of, of the, I don't know, the spiritual community, the, uh, of those who are heart-centered practitioners mm -hmm. um, that I, the words that I didn't know and, and still don't have a deep, close relationship with. I, I, I'm the last person I think who should probably define what a chakra is. <laughs> Um, in my very, very limited understanding, these are um, uh, wheels of energy in our body that I, I can't even answer the question beyond that. <laughs> they do something yes. super important. Uh, no, I'm, I'm not that kind of practitioner. I have friends who I would refer to answer that question for sure. But the, the, the heart-centered practices are simply about allowing ourselves to be more present in our emotional states mm. and more kind to ourselves rather than more shrewd and discerning and surgical with how do I solve my problem? Rather, it's asking you to consider what if I don't have a problem? What if I'm okay exactly as I'm showing up right now? Mm. Which for Americans is at the leap off the bridge to consider that we might actually be okay right now because our, I mean, our constitution thrives on telling us that we can pursue happiness and the market uh, thrives on telling us that we haven't got there yet. So mm -hmm. we're in this perpetual pursuit of something. And so to tell us that we might be okay as we are, that goes against the grain of, of our whole culture. Mm -hmm. There's so much power in giving ourselves self-love and compassion. And what would you say has been your biggest learning in being able to start practicing that for yourself? When I was pregnant with my son, um, the third the third trimester uh, was the beginning of quarantine in in Los Angeles, and um, and that meant that I was no that the gyms were closed. But then I I was I mean I I was a small planet at that point, <laughs> anyway, and like other yes. smaller pregnant women would begin to orbit me, I'm sure, <laughs> but. Um, it meant that really that there was there was no even not, no even um, minor exercise that I could that was available to me to partake in, um, and I really had to look at my body as a tool that was sacrificing itself in that moment mm. for me, um, and I had to become more curious. I, I, I use curiosity in my practice a lot. My clients are sick of it, um, but I had to become more curious. Am I so sure that I need to be in the gym or that I need to look like this or that I, I need to be able to present in this particular way. You know, here's all that trauma from growing up in Hollywood. And, and again, still you know, living in LA years later. Um, am I so sure that I'm only valuable under those circumstances? And mm. you know, that was like a, a year, gosh, a year ago, March. Um, and, and I've done a lot of work and I've been in recovery for a while. And still, those are really insidious thoughts. So I would say, I remember walking around our neighborhood in Mar Vista with my hands on my belly and um, it, you know, it wasn't about the baby at that point, it was still about me. Uh, you know, Things transform when you have the kid, but I remember thinking, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for what my body was doing and for me allowing it to happen because that was an act of love. Um, I certainly had noise about, just gonna just do one of the beach boot camps. No big deal, just, just get out there. No, it just was not the time for that. It just wasn't. Mm. So um, allowing myself to be curious, is it possible that I'm still valuable exactly like this? And of course it is. Like I, we could make the argument for why any other pregnant woman is valuable, but for ourselves in that moment, I, you know, we cannot be convinced. So it's a heroic leap of faith really to dive into that. Mm. Did that answer the question? Yeah, 
Yeah, I, I, okay. I think it's it's a big learning to be able to in different situations and life experiences to be able to give ourselves that positive self-talk. Pregnancy mm-hmm. really tests that. Um, Absolutely. You, you know yeah. that you know that what's happening in your body is a miracle. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But it tests that self-talk, that self-compassion probably more than any other time in my life. It really does. It really does. I, I, I'm curious w- w- if you have moments of when your self-compassion was tested. I want to hear about it. Yeah. I mean, I'm trying to, I'm, I mean, very similar to you. I work in a fitness uh, career. My full-time job, I work as a fitness coach and I, I was unable to continue to coach um, mm-hmm. at uh, about six weeks left in my pregnancy, probably seven weeks, just standing, walking, anything had really bad pubic symphysis pain. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, my doctor told me no more coaching, no more coaching, no more wow. um, high intensity workouts, which is what we do at Alchemy. And yep. that was like, that was my identity was working out. Mm-hmm. And I had kept working out my whole pregnancy up until that point. Mm-hmm. And I had to totally shift my mindset and that was hard for me. And I had to tell myself, you know, my body is doing this remarkable thing. It's Mm -hmm. our baby Mm -hmm. and it's going to be okay. And I love Mm -hmm. myself and I love what's happening. And I just need to respect what's happening in my body right now. Mm-hmm. And it was a daily practice because I absolutely wanted to be in the rooms with my athletes, coaching them, working out mm-hmm. with them. Um, and I've learned a lot uh, since that situation of, oh, I, c- I could have been doing PT prenatally. So mm-hmm. I'm doing PT now. And there's just all these other things. And I'm learning to also figure out, okay, how can I make sure that I'm also treating my body correctly and doing the right things for our bodies postpartum and prenatally and things like that. But I think it just tests you so much because your body is not your own when you're pregnant. Not at all. And I think we're, we're used to knowing the the lay of the land that we're like, yeah, okay, I I get this cue, but I can override that. I can push harder. Mm -hmm. I can, I don't need that. Right. Or like we can kind of play fast and loose with it because we've earned that. Well, we think we've earned that trust with our body and learning what it needs in any given moment, even when we're ignoring it. But with pregnancy, you cannot ignore anything. That hunger truck pulls up and you are it's bitch. It's it's just like, yeah. I, I think too, it's, also recognizing you got to rein it in at some point. Like I kept doing my workouts, but I thought I was going to be doing pull-ups the whole time through my pregnancy because I had friends that were able to. Well, mm-hmm. not for me at 13 weeks, it didn't feel good. So I wasn't doing it. And it's not about me. It's about me and my baby. And yes. it doesn't make sense to just push ourselves for me to going back to that fear of, well, I've always been the person that works out. I've always been that fit person. And now I'm not going to be able to do the pull-ups. I'm going to have to do right. the ring rows. And it's like, right. And what does it mean about you if you're yeah. not the person who does the pull-ups? Yeah. And I and tell, it's funny because, you know, you probably tell your clients, I tell our members it modifying, like scaling, we say isn't failing at our gym because it's not, but it's easy for me to say it to someone else. But then when it's my turn to tell it to myself, I'm like, scaling isn't failing. Scaling isn't fa- failing, Al. It's okay. I, I got to tell you, like when I was, when I was training as a boxer, I, 
I, I, I trained mostly with guys who were, they were not pulling any punches with me. Um, but they often asked, hey, dude, you need me to lighten up? And I'd be like bleeding from the nose and the mouth and half concussed and like, nope, I don't want to be that girl. No, nope, it's just fine. Keep going. Like, are, are you kidding? This is completely self-destructive. Mm-hmm. Again, like for some women getting in the ring would have been heroic. For me, getting out of the ring was heroic. Mm-hmm. For some women, doing the, the regular pull-up is heroic. For you, doing the modification is heroic because that mm-hmm. requires more courage for you. Mm-hmm. We we set these really high expectations for ourselves and we're able to assist others to step back and tell Mm -hmm. them it's okay. It's okay to be kind to yourself. It's okay to be gentle with yourself. But when we have to do that self-talk with our own minds, our own bodies, it's so much harder, Mm -hmm. so much harder. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mad respect for you for making those uh, those adjustments. Really, it's big deal. It's it's cool to look back on it, and it's also just like so. Every time I think about pregnancy, I'm just our bodies are our bodies are crazy. I posted about this on my Instagram yesterday. A photo of uh-huh. me. I saw um, that. one day yeah. postpartum, and then it was a photo of me. Um, I think a few months before I got pregnant. Uh-huh. It's just so crazy to just look at the two images and just see our body doing super tall box jumps and then our body just birthing a baby. I, I remember looking at that photo and thinking, it's really badass. And in and, and truth, like we're trained as American women to think only one of those is badass. Mm-hmm. Both of them are fucking badass. Mm-hmm. Forgive me if this morning is sometimes out of control. But um, that one is considered a before and one's considered an after. But my God, they're both heroic things that your body is mm-hmm. doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we have not had enough curiosity around developing an appreciation for uh, like, okay, so this aesthetic doesn't match what we think is mm. valuable, but how about the whole rest of it? Is that valuable? Mm. That, that is such, um, such a valid point because we so often are being served photos of the female with the abs and the biceps and lifting the heavy weights. And we're being told that is empowering and that is strong. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to tell you like, (laughs) so is the woman that is two days postpartum and carrying her baby around the house. And so is the woman that is struggling through getting pregnant or going through a pregnancy after loss or just having a miscarriage or struggling through infertility. Like they are equally just as strong, if not stronger, but we as a society have yet to empower those women to feel strong and to step up and to embrace Mm -hmm. that strength that they have to carry on to really celebrate it. Yep. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's when we talk about healing, internalized misogyny, that's it. That's it. And it starts with how do we celebrate other women? It's hard to celebrate ourselves. Um, a lot easier to get behind other women, assuming we're not operating from you know the place of threat, but mm-hmm. um, for the most part, that's, that's the work. Mm-hmm. I have seen this TikTok lately that's been going around and maybe you've seen it where it's like, I don't know if you've heard, but it's 2021 and women are supporting women now. And it's like, it's so funny because it's, it's so true. It's this huge shift as a culture that we're trying to make is it's not competition. Mm-hmm. It's teamwork. It's collaboration. Absolutely. 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 And it, it, we have this message that 
as a woman, your success threatens mine mm. or your uniqueness threatens mine or something like your value threatens mine, which you know, that, that's worth taking a second look at. That is a belief system that is um, sort of indoctrinated with us in our, in our development. Um, and it takes some intentional interruption of that instinct to not want to get behind a woman or not want to like her post or not want whatever, like however yeah. manifests for us um, to be really intentional about overriding that. I think that is a really hard belief system to overcome because we can see someone else putting out the same content, offering the same um, maybe coaching systems Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. yoga classes or whatever it is. And we see them doing the same things that we are and we're instantly like want to put up a guard. Mm -hmm. But how, how do we get past that? How do we say, wait a second. It starts with noticing the guard. For the most part, we don't even know there's a guard up. We have some other reason that we've decided, I can't right now, or I don't have the energy, or I don't really want to, or no, I don't really fully agree with this. Like there are plenty of excuses Mm. that we come up with um, to decide why not to actively support support our fellow women. And it really, it starts with acknowledging our resistance. What do we think it's gonna cost me to support her? Mm. What do I think it's going to take away from me? Mm. Got to get curious. Yeah. Those, those are conversations that we have to have either in a therapeutic setting or a coaching setting. Um, but if, if we're not asking those questions, then it's not going to happen. If we're not in relationship with that fear, we don't get liberated. Mm. It's, it's a really tough a tough, tough, tough belief system to overcome, but I'm hopeful that we're going to just continue to make progress. As the aware, it's like a slow dimmer switch. As the awareness comes, it it's going to get brighter and brighter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're going to begin to see it. We're going to begin to catch ourselves. We're going to be more accountable and we're going to start to, to take more risks with it. Mm-hmm. Actually see what happens when we get behind each other. Yes. <laughs> My Molly, this has been amazing. And we've gotten to talk about so many empowering conversations. And my last question that I have for you is what is the ripple that you want to create? Let me take, let me take a moment with that. Mm -hmm. I think the ripple really has more to, to do with being in relationship with our courage, mm. that it, it feels for, for all of us, a life and death issue to be present with our anxiety or dig deeper into that thought. Where's that come from? Do you really believe that? Are you so sure about that? You really wanna fight for that? And it all starts with our, our willingness to kind of look under these stones that we've walked on for so long and called it the foundation, but without really considering, do I, do I want this thought? Is this helpful? Do I really believe this? Um, because those are the very thoughts that create the infrastructure of our lives. Um, and it takes a shit ton of courage to be able to uproot all of that, to be able to take a, a second look rather than thinking, no, I got this. I'm good. There's such an arrogance to that. So curiosity and courage, those are the ripples that I want to make. Mm, you have to have courage to even be willing to do the work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Where can my listeners find you? And I will link all of this in the show notes as well. Okay. Okay. Uh, my website is just mollyburney.com. Uh, and you can find me on Instagram at mbclinicalcoaching. 
Awesome. Molly, thank you so much. And to all of our listeners, thanks for joining us. Make sure you share this episode out with a friend and let's continue to create ripples.